Hello listeners, this is Matt from Uncanny Treks, and I want to take a moment to tell you about our brand new Patreon at patreon.com slash uncannytreks. On our Patreon, we offer lots of exclusive content in multiple tiers, including access to our brand new Patreon-exclusive podcast, X-Men 92 vs. Young Justice. On this podcast, we follow the same format as B5 vs. DS9, but with an entirely new focus on reliving the nostalgia of 90s X-Men animated series and comparing it to the fast-paced action of Young Justice. Both of these animated series have recently been renewed for new seasons, so we felt it was a great time to return to these two comic book-based properties. If you're interested in subscribing, please visit us at patreon.com slash uncannytreks, and you can always reach out to us on Twitter at uncannytreks. Enjoy the show, and as always... Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus DS9, the galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. We are a part of Uncanny Treks. I am Bob from Cascadia. That's Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing tonight, Matt? Oh, I could be doing better, Bob. Aw, aw, do, do uh, mediocre episodes of television have you down, Matt? Yeah, they, they were pretty mediocre this week. Not, not too much to... Uh... To live by a very, very awkward scene in the Babylon 5 episode that we will get to during Thirst Watch. So, oh, God. Stay around for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, wait till near the end. That's when the real madness begins. Uh, so, today we're talking about Babylon 5, Season 2, Episode 12, Acts of Sacrifice, which originally aired on the 22nd of February, 1995, as well as DS9, Season 3, Episode 15, Destiny, which originally aired on the 13th of February, 1995. So, in Acts of Sacrifice, in the A plot, as the Centauri target Narn with civilians, Jakar implores Earth and Minbar to intervene, and tensions between the Centauri and Narn station populations escalate while Malari suddenly finds himself unpopular among the non-Centauri. Who could have foreseen this, Matt? Who could have foreseen this? I know, on a station with all those different races and all this, he just thought everybody just get along. Earth Wars yeah, would be okay yeah. with it, yeah. <laughs> and then in the B-plot, we've got Ivanova having to woo Ambassador Coral Muzone of the technologically advanced but socially Darwinist species, the Lumati, who are quite impressed by the humans' treatments of their own in the down below of the station. Yeah, if you want the worst B-plot in B5 up to this point, it's got to be this, Bob. <laughs> yeah, I unless I'm forgetting something horrible, I think I can reassure you that it's this is as bad as it'll ever get. Even the Franklin stuff that I've watched is nowhere near the cringe of this B-plot. Yeah, yeah. Well, really, it's like, 
the the general concept of the B plot is not great, but is not terrible. It's just where it ends up. Yes, where it ends up is awful. All right, so let's just, let's just, let's just, let's just go back to that A plot, Bob. Let's talk about it for a little while. What, what's going okay. on there? At the beginning of the episode, we get a really good starship battle, and it's probably the best like represent, at least like the best television representation of a starship battle that we've seen up to this point. I guess either I'm just getting used to seeing the ships and know who they belong to and which race they're, they they represent, or the CGI is getting better. I mean, what what's your take on that? Yeah, that, that's a good point. I don't know. I think in some ways that this battle we're seeing is a neat little short story where we see, like, the Narn uh, nearly getting away. Then they see that, oh, there's a civilian transport that's been left behind. So they have to, you know, the Narn warship has to go back, put itself in between the civilian transport and the Centauri ships. And so in that way, like, there's, I think, a much clearer narrative line here and a kind of more engaging narrative line where... I think most of the battles we've seen have been like, you know, we saw the conflicts over the uh, great machine on the planet beneath Babylon 5. And I don't know, the battles there were a little more muddled. We've seen little things here and there with usually it just seems like it's the shadows blowing up the Narn, right? Yeah. And, and usually the battles are kind of hard to follow. So I agree with you on that. that like there's more of a story that's being told with the ships the way it was set up and and I guess the way I, was the right word choreographed I guess the way it was <laughs> oh that's an I mean I don't think it's inappropriate but I, I I usually don't think of starship battles as being choreographed but I mean I guess they are in, a, in an important sense yeah it's like a dance Bob it's a dance yes yes Matt it's a dance dance, a dance. of the starships no so that that was actually a really strong opening to the episode I'd also uh, to just kind of pivot a little one of the other things I did really enjoy about this episode, since we're trying to accentuate the positive in the A-plot, is for whatever reason, the Zocalo uh, in this episode gave me a lot of uh, Roadhouse from Twin Peaks vibes. I think it's probably just the way it's lit. It's a very kind of 90s lighting that reminds me of uh, the original Twin Peaks, as well as the fact that when uh, Malari is sitting alone in the Zocalo and Garibaldi hasn't shown up, there's uh, one guy, you know, slowly, slowly... Uh, moving a, a sweeping machine around the floor, and that's always going to give you Twin Peaks to Return vibes. Yeah, you can thank David Lynch because anyone seen sweeping on any television show is going to give you those vibes. Yeah, so. yeah. Although I guess we should say, in fairness, what this is probably like 30 seconds to a minute of sweeping with other characters in the frame. So nowhere near the genius of what was it, about seven minutes on Twin Peaks to Return of just one character sweeping. Yes, it was it was beautiful in one sense and absolutely terrible in another because I oh, wanted I don't think I, it was terrible. It at was terrible. No, it was terrible, Bob, because I wanted more plot from Twin. I know I'm going all way off on a tangent here, but in Twin Peaks: The Return, that whole sweeping scene, I wanted more plot. <laughs> and, and and you know David Lynch did that slow slow build. That did pay off in the end, but me watching week to week, I was like, we're ending I, this episode I would say there's plenty of plot in Twin Peaks to Return. You just had to impose most of it yourself on the material. So seven minutes of sweeping, what did it teach you, Bob? Uh, it taught you about the importance of craft. It uh, <laughs> taught you about, um, you know, the 
the kind of work it takes to maintain the roadhouse. Okay, Bob. We're going to agree to disagree <laughs> on this one. <laughs> All right. So one thing about this episode, other positive, Natoth returns, which I didn't, I wasn't sure if that was her at first, because I was like, I haven't seen her in so long, and I thought it might be a different female Narn, but it, you're right, it was Natoth. Yeah, it is our, our season two Natoth, as opposed to our season one Natoth, or the other character who filled the same role as Natoth, who fell out the airlock, as you correctly predicted. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm, I'm glad she's back for this. I, uh, I kind of admit, like, I missed the whole part where you had more involvement with the ambassador's assistance. Like, I feel like you don't see as much of that now at this moment. You'll, you'll see more later, but yeah, I, it, it really, even though I don't really care for Lanier, it has been an awful long time. It feels like since we've seen Lanier yeah, and Veer, I forget exists. I, I wish I could forget that Veer exists, <laughs> but yeah, Natal, this is, she hasn't been around at all. So interesting. Go, go to have her back. Yeah, don't don't expect to have too much more of her, but um, but do, do expect to see a lot more of uh, Veer and Lanier. I think you can say that without spoilers. All right, so that's pretty much the only good of this episode, if I'm not mistaken. Do you want to move into well, the? Uh... I didn't. I didn't think this was bad. I mean, we have we had a couple of other things. I mean, we've got so Jakar has been petitioning Dylan and Sheridan to get Earth involved, and. That doesn't happen. Um, you know, we can, you can sort of chalk this up to the kind of xenophobic and the kind of isolationist tone that the Earth Alliance has been taken. Although it does seem that the Narn regime's like prior aggressiveness and prior kind of like diehard opposition to the Centauri does seem to have convinced the Minbari that there's just no point in getting involved because this is, you know, only ever going to end one way. So if they, if they intervene to protect the Narn now, then, you know, in five years, 10 years, they'll have to debate about intervening to protect the Centauri and they just don't want to get caught in this cycle. Yeah, that makes sense. But the other thing too, that we did learn is that the Centauri left the Narn homeworld at some point because it was basically a war of attrition at that point, which it makes sense because you haven't really, the Narn seem very weak as far as the, like military goes well i think it's i think they actually are a pretty effective military because they're pretty thoroughly dominating the centauri early in the show i think it's just the fact that the shadows outclass everybody else on uh all the other major powers and they've made several key strikes that have sort of decapitated the narns military effectiveness i think that's more the issue so without the backup of the shadows, then the Centauri would pretty much just be on. Would you say they're equal to the Narn or would you say they're. I mean, the impression we got, I think, in season one was that the, the Centauri were weaker, right? Like the Narn were expanding and the Centauri weren't putting up much, if any, resistance. And now, granted, some of that was because the Centauri Emperor was a good man and felt, you know, regret for what they had done to the Narn homeworld. Right. But, but he's dead it, now. He is dead now. But it did seem like uh, the Narn, you know, were in the position to to rule or to, you know, dominate or to really push the battle home against the Centauri, you know, the, in the prior year. It's just the circumstances have not turned out the way they would have reasonably expected them to. What do you think of Sheridan agreeing to help 
get the refugees off of the Nar homeworld. I mean, in general, like as an ethical matter, it's a good thing. I, I don't know if it's the Narn homeworld exactly, or if it's just other Narn colonies. Right. But that that seems like a good thing. I, you know, there is a kind of like '90s. Uh, oh, the U.S. ought to intervene in every conflict abroad to save human life attitude in the show that I find kind of disgusting, especially given like what the U.S. actually did in the 90s and places like uh, the no-fly zone in Iraq and uh, in places like um, the Balkans. And so, I, you know, I, I don't actually think that, uh, you know, empires should intervene uh, frequently um, for, you know, even if it's for uh, supposedly or uh, purportedly humanitarian reasons. So, I'm, you know, I'm kind of glad on an ethical level that Dillon and uh, Sheridan are kind of staying out of it. But, but do you think it's hypocritical of Sheridan since he was all about, like, uh, not helping the telepath underground railroad? But now he's basically running his own railroad through Babylon 5 for the Narn? I mean, as as messed up as it is to have your characters uh, complain about an underground railroad, I will say that, like, you know, the concern about telepaths is a lot different than the concern about Narn civilians. Fair enough. What if the telepaths helped fight help got together with the narns well as you know the narns have no telepaths yeah hmm just just In, some food for thought interestingly if you if you think this is interesting like putting the telepaths in context of uh interstellar politics you'll see a lot more of that uh in season five and it's frankly awful so, uh, <laughs> just uh just steal yourself it's coming all right Telepaths becoming the next player in the war against the Centauri. Yeah, I, I thought we did know, to your other point, I thought we did know that um, the Narn had won a war of attrition against the Centauri. We probably did, but I, this is my first time trying to figure it out, yeah. so I like to think it's the only time it's been mentioned. To make me I don't see, know. It's, to, I mean, to, it's to also me... kind of really impossible for me to keep track of what we've seen in this watch through versus what I had already seen in my prior watch through. It allows me to see more intelligent when I can just say that I haven't seen it before. I've never heard it before. When probably and, uh, I, it's I, my I, goal to undermine any pretensions <laughs> you have to intelligence. So, yeah. so, okay. Now throughout this, you have Malari and Garibaldi, this whole thing going on with them, this, this bromance type of thing where would, would Go into that, Bob. Tell us a little bit about that. And what, what were your feelings about that? I thought it was kind of sweet. Like, uh, you know, understandably, Garibaldi doesn't really want to hang out with uh, Malari because uh, Malari is, uh, you know, deeply implicated in a uh, nearly genocidal policy of the Centauri against yeah. the Narn. It's pretty un unseemly, pretty morally shady. And uh, so Malari has to go out of his way to be nice to uh, Garibaldi and to be a somewhat decent human being. Uh, when it comes to not encouraging retaliation for that Centauri who was murdered. So, uh, you know, we see the relationship somewhat repaired by Malari, and I, th I thought it was kind of sweet. Yeah, I've got this gut feeling that that's not going to last very long. I think you'll be surprised how Londo handles his uh, personal relationships going forward. Yeah. See, at first I felt like this whole thing in this episode felt kind of forced, like this kind of bromance thing going on. But then I remember that they had a lot of a lot of it in season one, so they did, yeah. yeah. So it's it does actually work. You just have to you know 
keep in mind that there was a lot of that built up in season one. So I got a question for you, Bob. What's the better What's the better bromance? Is it O'Brien and Odo and their wacky hollow deck uh, excursions? Is it Garrick and Bashir or Malari and Garibaldi? So this is complicated. Uh, as much as I like O'Brien and Odo's bromance, I'm going to have to rule it out because you really don't see very much of it at all. It's hardly... Aren't those the best bromances, Bob? No. <laughs> so that leaves you with Garrick and Bashir and Malari and Garibaldi. And I feel like those are just kind of two categorically different bromances, whereas I I don't even know if you can call Garrick and Bashir's bromance a bromance because it's not two, uh, it's not two dudes bonding. It's... Uh, two dudes bonding and uh, with, you know, enough queer subtext to uh, choke somebody. Whereas, you know, if you want to, if you want to read some queer subtext into Malari and Garibaldi, you're very welcome to, but I um, just don't think it, I, I don't know. I just don't think it's quite in the same category as Garrick and Bashir. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Somebody tweeted not too long ago, a really great picture or, or a piece of art they had done of like, old Garrick and Bashir and like Garrick's a statesman and like Bashir is like, you know, an old school doctor. They're probably in like their sixties, but they're a couple. Have yeah. You, have yeah. you seen this? Did, did you... I, I did. I did. I, I, I don't remember it very specifically, but I did see it. Yeah. I, I felt that was that, that pretty much sums up their relationship. I like that. Well, one of the more furious uh, responses to a tweet we've ever gotten is I retweeted somebody's theory that like, Let's see. I believe that as the theory went, it was that Bashir and Garrick should be like an old and a bitter divorce couple uh, <laughs> and if they come back in like Picard season two and that that would be really funny. And I agree that that would be really funny, but it got two kinds of furious response. The first legitimate was just that, you know, uh, people like to see successful uh, gay relationships because God knows uh the media up until maybe the mid 2010s was not really interested in showing many of those. So, you know, I, I, I get that, that people, you know, do want some of their gay relationships on, in their media to be successful, to, you know, to be thriving. So, you know, those people who are irritated at it for that reason, I, you know, I, I understand completely, but then it got enough pickup that we were also getting the chuds who are just like, there's literally no sexual tension between Bashir and Garrick at all, to which I was just like, you should rewatch uh, the first appearance of Garrick, man. It might change your perspective. Yeah, go, go back and rewatch if you can't find it. You just keep watching it until you see it. <laughs> yeah, so, it's there. Uh, you, you know, my, my, much love to our uh, queer uh, fans of Babylon 5 and DS9 out there, and uh, much amusement at our Chud fans. All right, so let's, let's, let's leave Babylon 5 for a moment. Let's move on to DS9. All right. So in the A plot of, uh, was it Destiny? Yeah, De it was Destiny. Destiny. We've got a joint Federation, Cardassian, Bajoran attempt to establish a communications array through the wormhole, but it seems to run afoul of a rogue Vedic's interpretation of a Bajoran prophecy. And then in the B plot, poor Quark really struggles when he tries to reorient back toward Cardassian food and Kanar service. Yeah, that was that to me was really the best part of the episode, even though it really wasn't a very major part of the episode. Yeah, there, there wasn't much to that, but it was pretty funny because he's going to have to. He really thinks Cardassians are going to like be storming the halls soon. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but I mean, it's sad. Like Odo and Cisco say that he can't do live vol fights. I mean, that's just it's sad. I wanted to see some live vol fights. Vols are those like creatures that were, they had to like exterminate in that earlier season, season two, yeah, I believe, yeah. right? Okay. They had so a vol infestation in season two, I believe it was. Good connection. Good connection. Thanks for bringing that full circle. <laughs> so I, on the whole, I'd say this is a pretty forgettable episode, but I, I really did like the three female Cardassian scientists, Galora, Yulani, and Deshar. They also used it for a pretty good joke that on Cardassia, the sexist stereotype is that men have no head for science. So I really enjoyed uh, O'Brien uh, being uh, shocked and offended when he finds out about that stereotype. That was quite cute. Yeah, and uh, Galora Rogel is actually played by Tracy Scoggins. She was a uh, Cat Grant on Lois and Clark. Yes, she, but she also plays a role in B five later on. But I don't really know who or what. I just know I've seen images of her. It's a very important role. Um, um, do you want me to spoil when it happens? No, nah, I'm I've I don't I'm, I've seen DVD covers with her on it, so I'm assuming okay. is it like season three? I think or is this mm, could be could okay. be. Okay, uh, but she's she's almost unrecognizable under all the Cardassian makeup. Yeah, I, I, to, I, I totally didn't recognize her at all. I thought about looking up who the uh, three Cardassian scientists were, but I just, I didn't. Uh, you know, sorry. Sorry, listeners, I failed you. But good good job on picking up who Well, the uh, only reason I caught was. The only reason I caught it was because her name was in the opening credits. Ah, uh, nice. So I was nice. like, Tracy Scoggins? Oh, wait a minute. I know her. So what did you think about all the uh, prophesying we got in this episode? Yeah, the whole viper prophecy thing it reminded me of all like the prophesizing that jacquard does with the book of jaquan uh like the further we get into b5 the more i see like the obvious similarities between both the bajorans and the norn they are very similar <laughs> i i will yeah they they are although there's i think you have to say that the narns are better realized culture i think even though, kind of interestingly, we see a lot more Bajorans and we see a lot more Bajoran politics than we do ever see Narns on DS or on Babylon Five, but I still feel like the Narns to me feel like a better realized culture. And then uh, one other thing dealing with the prophecy piece here is that I kind of appreciated Odo, Kira, and, and Dax, all three of them, at some point in the episode, calling out Cisco for sort of distancing himself from the title of emissary. Because that's yeah. something that hasn't come back much. I mean, they'll mention it here and there, but I mean, this is this was really like them flat out saying, uh, you know, you are the emissary, or you need to do something about this. You have the power to make this right if you want. I mean, you're the. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting they raised this fact that like it must be incredibly weird for Kira to be directly under the person she basically believes is a messiah. Correct. Like, yeah. That yeah, that must be incredibly weird for her. But you know, normally they just act you know normal as normal Star Trek's uh, officers, and to to highlight that was kind of cool. Although I have to say, like in Cisco's defense, like what exactly do Odo, Kira, and Dax want the man to do? Like he doesn't necessarily believe in his role, and so and he also you know wants to sort of respect Bajoran's, Bajor's culture, integri cultural integrity to a certain extent. So, like, I don't know, it seems to me to be, to having, like, a very kind of low-key approach to the role of Emissary is probably the correct one. Yeah, they, they just want him to embrace it and do cool shit with the wormhole. That's what it boils down to. <laughs> wormhole <laughs> tricks, man. Yes, wormhole tricks. 
<laughs> um, other thing, one cool image that I, I completely don't remember ever seeing, but it was neat. It was the first time we see Dax and the captain's chair of the Defiant, I was like, hmm, that would be kind of a cool show if they did that. <laughs> she was the captain of a ship. That that is, that is kind of cool. I'm, I must confess that, that that didn't stick with me at all. But you're right; that is a cool visual. Although I guess it's a kind of neat little foreshadowing of like um, Ezri Dax in the novels choosing to go the command route. And, right. Yeah. You know, there's apparently a fair number of novels about her ship. I think one other thing that uh, <laughs> stuck with me, and this is really just kind of a, a stupid thing, but at the very end of the episode, O'Brien says, "Appreciate" <laughs> in his accent. And I'm just going to start saying it that way because I thought it was so just appreciate. I do appreciate you. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm sure people will be very appreciative yeah. of that, Matt. No, appreci- sure like uh, appreciative. I just love, I don't know, it just, it just it stuck with me. I thought it was awesome. So thank you, O'Brien. <laughs> I will be using that from well, this point to- forward. <laughs> to kind of pivot to econ watch i suppose there are kind of like two dominant econ themes uh in these pair of episodes the one for uh the ds9 episode destiny was that unfortunately Kanar is much more perishable than quark imagined and i felt i really felt bad for him really felt bad that he was you know had all these grand expansion plans and he's just not going to realize them and then uh on the uh, babylon 5 episode acts of sacrifice uh one of the acts of sacrifice is, man, the cost of bribes in the Centauri economy must be really high. Yeah, you got to have some money if you're going to be doing any kind of power plays in uh, Babylon 5. Yeah, yeah. So, well, at least in the Centauri Republic. Have we uh, delayed the inevitable long enough, Matt? Yeah, let's get to this cringeworthy thirst watch that, uh, ugh, it's awful. It's- so let me let me pose a sort of aggressive question to you, Matt. How can you doubt Ivanova's loyalty after she went through this ordeal? Uh, I don't know. Maybe are these are we going to see these aliens again? Whatever they were called, the Lumati. Are they a big? I'm part pretty of... sure we do not. Okay. I'm pretty sure we're free of them. Okay, because I thought maybe that was part of it. I don't know how powerful they really are, because that was one thing. So. For those of you, so I don't force you to have to go back and rewatch this if you don't remember what happens. Basically, the Lumati believe that humans are inferior. Yes. Correct? Yes. So, it's Ivanova's job, basically, to prove that humans are worthy of having them be represented on Babylon 5. Yes. Although, when she's given the assignment, it doesn't feel like Sheridan or the Earth Alliance really understand very much about the the Lumati yet. Okay, so at the same time she's learning about them, well, it gets to a point where the Lumati are like, okay, after visiting down below, we have seen how you treat your poor, and they want to do the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually actually pretty grim that (laughs) they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we're this, like, really conceited social Darwinist species, but even we've never thought of abusing our impoverished like this. Ivanova doesn't agree with this, but she still understands that. Okay, now they they want they want an ambassador on them on board. Is that what they want? Like, what was the ultimate goal? Or just to have communication with them, or an alliance, or do you remember? I mean, like, I don't like just generally. It seems like Sheridan wants to open up diplomatic ties and an alliance, and you know, with the hopes of you know, hopefully, like tech, technology exchange, maybe help down the line. Granted. 
you, you'll see a lot of this of them re them reaching out to different beings and different species in preparation for the shadow war and honestly like none of it really ever goes anywhere like it, it's the pretext for some better stories in this but it doesn't really go anywhere all right so i've, I've drug it out far enough let me get to the to, to the reason this is in thirst watch so in order to seal the deal yes uh the lumati ambassador or lumati representative says that now he must have sex with Ivanova. Yes. And that that's the only way that this can happen. So Ivanova must offer herself to him and they must, you know, have sexual intercourse for this to work. Yes. And then, so Ivanova convinces him to do the sexual intercourse her way, which basically just consists of her yelling a lot of, very strange slogans that are somewhat related to 96 at him and uh, then acting like it's finished and, and jumping around him. Yes. Like jumping this, around him. Yes. That's very weird, important. awkward arm arms flailing. I, I don't know. I feel like it tried to be the scene of like Meg Ryan, you know, in the diner in that movie, the Barry she, Levinson movie. No, whatever that movie is where she's like, you know, she's she's pretending like she's having Oh, it's an not orgasm. called The Diner. It's just about a diner. I don't know what it is. She, but where she's in the diner with uh, the dude, and she's like, she she uh, pretends to orgasm at the table. She's like real loud, you know, and all the patrons are. And then the, the waitress I, says, I'll have what she's having. Oh, I don't know this movie. Jesus, how do you not know this film? This is like, okay, it's got Billy Crystal in it. Well, I mean, that's why. Oh, okay. Oh, is that when Harry met Sally? Yes, when Harry met Sally. There we go. I feel like she thought this was going to be that kind of moment, but it wasn't. <laughs> and it was awkward. And I mean, I do just... think we have to give... Uh, what, what's the actress who plays Ivanova? Claudia maybe? Christian. Claudia Christian. She commits to it. I mean, it's the worst material uh, any actor or actress has ever been given, but she commits to it. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to go back and watch it and just like try to figure out what she actually says to see if it's actually it's funny. Matt, and I'm I, concerned. Do you do you hate yourself? No, that's what I'm saying. But I didn't want to. I, I didn't go back and do it because I didn't want to torture myself. It was so bad, and I just oh, want to. I want to completely forget it exists. Like yeah, I, I mean, just, you know, I'm on the record as not liking you, and even I would not want you to suffer yeah. through that. That's just and, too far, and, man. And as long as the Lumati don't really come back and play a key role or anything. I'm good with just forgetting about them as well and just I pretending mean, maybe, this plot didn't happen. Maybe they're really important in a season five episode that I've just totally blanked on. But no, I, th I think this is the only time we see them. I mean, if they really wanted to, they could have just done like the typical 90s, like post-coital scene at some point where Ivanova and the Lumati dude are like smoking cigarettes in bed and you get like the same effect. Yeah. <laughs> Although we do get the hint uh, because our Lumati ambassador leaves a uh, a sexy note and a gift for Ivanova, which just says something to the effect of next time my way and a little umbrella-like structure. So we get the sense that maybe Lumati sex is even stranger than the strange ritual that uh, Ivanova has come up with. Yeah, it, it, was, it was gross. One thing I do want to add, I, I read in the Lurker's notes, Somebody like legit back in 1995 asked JMS, what if Sheridan had been the one who had to show the Lumati around the station and then seal the deal? What would have happened? 
<laughs> and he said he basically said yeah, the same uh, the same thing would have had to have gone down like well that's uh, very progressive of JMS I suppose yes. so just in case in case you wanted to know had the had the roles been switched same shit would have gone down on a on a more positive note about thirst um I uh, I was really confused. I think displaying irritability uh, towards a desired partner as a sign of sexual interest is eminently rational, and I don't know why O'Brien is so confused about that. Yeah, there was like some major sexual tension at one point when they're in the uh, the Jerry tube, Jeffrey's tube, Jeffrey's tube. Sorry, Jeffrey's tube. When they're in the Jeffrey's tube, so I got a question for you, Bob. Galore or Kiko? Uh, Galore. I agree. I would go with Kalora. Again, I, I will stress that the uh, so far, the hate for Kiko seems deeply undeserved so far. Yeah, but galore. Yeah, yeah, it's still galore, though. All right, let's move on to character of the week, Bob. Yeah, so who was your character of the week this week, Matt? Hands down, Jakara, for that one scene where he, you can't tell if he's crying or he's laughing or if he's doing both, if he's having a mental breakdown just a great scene that was the scene of the week character of the week boom yeah we didn't even really give the context for that but like when sheridan uh, presents his underground railroad plan to jakar it's so insufficient to what the narn need jakar after everybody else goes yeah like you say just kind of descends into hysterics for lack of a better term your character of the week bob is jakar as well yeah still jakar still jakar awesome all, all right. right episode of the week bob well, can I can I just uh, can I not give one, Matt? Sure, I have to. That, that's fine. I mean, you're you're supposed to be a hard ass and say no, Bob. You no, must choose. No, I mean you can choose one or the other. But I, I I went with Destiny because it was it was all right. It wasn't anything amazing. Didn't really get much from it, but it, it was it was fun. It was. I'm going to pretend you said I have to choose, and since you said <laughs> since you said that, I'm going to say acts of sacrifice. Um, but man, the Ivanova part, who God? Yeah, yeah, that Ivanova thing. Yeah, just we're just going to forget it happened and move along because I'm sure there's move, better coming. Dare we say move along home, Matt? Move along home. All right, next week, Bob, we have. The episode B5 Hunter Prey. And we have the DS9 episode Profit Motive with Profit spelled P R O P H E T. And this but is. But yeah, you tell me it's a Ferengi episode. It is a Ferengi. Curious. It is a Ferengi episode. You get the Curious. Grand Nagus coming back. Woo! Good times with Wallace Shawn back on the station, baby. So this has been uh, Babylon 5 versus DS9, the galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. We are a part of Uncanny Treks. I am Bob from Cascadia. That is Matt from the Southland. He's dancing around me. He's screaming 90s cliches about sex. And as he does that, we know it's time to say, see you next time, everybody. Thank you for listening.